This podcast is a ministry of Christian Life Center in Berwyn, Illinois. Our goal is to create a real faith for the real world, and we hope this helps you grow. For more information at Christian Life Center, visit us at our website, www.berwynag.org. Thank you. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, the name of my name of my sermon is "Souls Aren't Sexy," and uh, a long while ago, um, several years ago, I think it was now, uh, and then again a couple months ago, this thought just kept uh, going through my mind, kept uh, bothering me. When you see when you care about the church and you see the church lacking in an area, then it really bothers you. And uh, so it, it uh, began to really haunt me a little bit. And then I have wrestled with this idea. And uh, often when God puts a seed like that into your spirit, he puts it there so that it will bear fruit. And so as you're thinking about it, as you're pondering it, as you're praying over it, as you're going through all the machinations that it takes to kind of digest information like we all do whenever the Lord shows us something, um, you recognize that the purpose is that God will bear fruit, that that seed will bear fruit in our minds so that there will be some form of conviction, some form of confirmation, and ultimately what will result in is a, a changed heart on the inside of us, that we will have a changed heart and that we will begin to do things, act, and, 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 and behave differently. And so uh, I want to pray right now. If we would pray a prayer of that we're willing to change. Can we pray that? And if the Lord reveals something to you tonight, then just tell the Lord you're willing to change. And so, Father, we come to you tonight, Lord, and we recognize that you are the director of our lives. You direct our steps. You order our life, Lord God. You have all kinds of things in, in, in line for us. You have greater ministry than we could possibly imagine. You have greater connections than we could ever imagine. Uh, in our own mind ever recognized Lord you have better for us than we could ever imagine so tonight in Jesus name we say to you Lord show us and we'll change Lord just show us and we'll change Lord show us and we'll make the adjustment to the truth that you revealed to us tonight I pray that revelation uh, would come into our lives I pray that our our thoughts would be ordered, that our steps would be directed by you, that everything in our life, Lord God, would come underneath your lordship, that there wouldn't any be, be any hindrance, any resistance, but that you would give us the passion that you had when you were on this earth, Lord, that we, we may walk in the same manner that you walked, and that, uh, and that we may glorify the name of our God and our Savior, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. From second. Or 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, 
comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. What drives the world system? The, the Bible answers that question in these verses here. The world system is driven by a, a number of different uh, attributes of different things here, but the first thing we should recognize is that there is a certain forbidden love that, that is, is out there, that we should, we should recognize that there is, there is a command to us to not love the world. Now, that doesn't mean to not love flowers, and it doesn't mean to not love your children, and it doesn't mean to not love your nice house or your, the things that are pleasant and enjoyable, you know, um, you know, it's okay to see trees of green and, you know, and think to yourself, what a wonderful world. It's okay to do that. It's a wonderful world. But when it's talking about the world here, it's thinking not about the creation of God, not about what God has given to us, not about those things we've received from the Lord, but about the things in the world that, that, that are challenging to the lordship of Jesus. Uh, so we can love in the world, but we can't love the world, meaning we can't love with the same priorities as the world. We can't love the things of this earth. In fact, the things of this earth pull us down. You know, the old song that they used to sing long ago, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The more you concentrate on God, the more the, the world around us begins to fade in its glory and, and the shiny things don't seem so shiny anymore. And, and when you, you, know, you realize it wasn't, I don't know, too many years ago I had some money in the stock market and then the stock market dropped. And then I suddenly had much less money in the stock market. And it was gone in just a short bit of time. Just all gone. Uh, really, to be honest with you, that was not a lot of money by today's standards, but it was everything that I had, every, my, my everything that I had saved up for my retirement, if that will ever even happen as a result of that. To see it gone in a moment means even though you know, you're able to, to save more money, you're able to do, you recognize it's all temporary, it's all empty, and the, and that, but there is something that's forever that's being worked in our life. And God is, everything that the Lord is working in our life is eternal. Everything that he's doing on the inside of us has an, an eternal purpose in it. God demands that we have an exclusive love, that we love him. And so everything, you know, that we love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. I, I read a great saying this week. It was, it said that, you know, we always, I'm going to botch this saying up, but basically it says, you know, we all often get on ourselves because we're not uh, loving God with our whole heart. But it's important to love him with our whole mind as well. To have our thoughts and our priorities and the thinking, things we are thinking about wholly be upon God. And as, as we, the more we become aware of God, the more we become aware of his glory and the things that he wants to do, we, the, our earthly priorities change and everything begins to, to change and we begin to be more freakish in the eyes of the world and we become a little bit less uh, understandable by people who don't have the same priorities as we do. 
there are these threefold attributes that the Lord gives us here that are the, 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 the system of the world. The, do not love the world, the, the things of the world, and then he rattles off these three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Some people would point out that these are the same ways that, that Adam and Eve fell into sin, that, that there was a desire. The word lust here just simply means desire. When Paul says, I des- desire to see you again, when he's talking to the, the, the churches, he uses the word epithemia, which is the same word as lust here. It's, it's just a strong desire. I have a strong desire to see you again. There's nothing impure about that. In fact, the, the term desire here is, is, uh, is tainted by, the, by using the word lust. But it, clearly it is a negative sense of desire, this negative desire that comes out of our flesh. You know, we think about the bodily appetites, the things that, that, that drive us on, the, the drive of the sinful nature that drives us on and makes us want to be something, uh, want for the things that are seemingly, uh, uh, cry, our flesh is crying out. And when I say flesh, I don't just mean our skin, I mean that whole sinful nature that was trained and raised up in the ways of the world, and so we fight, we fight that, you know, like a guy on a diet who's constantly walking by the Oreos in the cookie jar who's always looking at the cookie jar. The lust of the flesh draws you into that. Do you, anybody, cookie, cookie fans here, Oreo fans, yeah, a few of us. And so um, uh, we have, we have that, 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 those constant desires. And so that's constantly, that, that's what the world is made up. It's, it's made up of an unrestrained following after these uh, lustful desires of our flesh. It's made up of people who, who have lost their vision of, of what it really is to see the world. And so the lust of the eyes is the second thing. To, to, this, at the core of everything is in our life so, much, so often is covetousness. I mean, you think the entire ad agency... Everything in in the, every commercial you ever see is based upon the lust of the eyes. To get you, to, if you think about that, there, there's only how many ways are there into your brain? You know, well, there's that horrible Alfred Hitchcock thing about the earwigs that could go in there and drill into your. But that's not really true. That's just a show. But then there's the your eye gate, right? Things you see, and the things you hear, right? It's really, that's the only two ways into your brain that I know. Anybody know a third way into your brain? Eye gate and the ear gate. It's only two gates that go into your mind. Uh, your eyes can read a revelation on a page and, and it goes into your brain and your mind is changed forever. Your ears can hear some magnificent word and it, it can change you. And it, honestly, it works the other way around too. You can see things that taint your soul and the, the, that... that uh, that uh, spoil, despoil your, your vision, and you can hear things that you can't get out of your mind, right? Those earworms, those songs that, you know, never go away. They just stay in your brain over, you, ever, you know, you know those, the ones, the songs, I won't sing any of them because I don't want to plant them in your brain, but they're already there in your brain. You probably know them, and they're just there, hanging out there, and sometimes they just circle like planes over the airport. Just, just they won't leave. You can't get rid of them. And some, some things are, in, are implanted in our brains through the songs that we hear, or the things that we heard said, we hear said, 
I heard a joke, uh, not a particularly filthy joke, but an irreligious joke, unholy joke, when I was first saved when I was 18 years old. And every once in a while, I think of that same joke. Never repeated it out of my mouth, ever. But I heard it, and just in a conversation of two guys that were, and I think it was said, you know, in, in light of my faith. They were, they were talking about it, kind of trying to make it loud enough so I could hear it. That has stayed with me since I was 18. That's a long time. That's, you know, 36 years, right? That's, a, no, 46 years. 40 years? 40 years. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I don't know what happened there. Uh, so old that I can't do simple math. Anyway, so that stayed for, for decades in my brain. Why is that there? Why didn't the Holy Ghost come down with a bad joke broom and sweep it out the door? Why, why is that left in the inside of my, my heart? It's because there's only a couple of ways in. So when he says the lust of the eyes, he recognizes and, and is challenging us to acknowledge the fact that, that the, the nothing, we, nothing happens until we have a want to, until we have a desire for it, Right? Right? Nothing. You never go for something. You don't go for the cookies until you realize they're there. And oftentimes you don't realize they're there until you, until you see them. My, my wife has a daycare in the house. And now you would, I would never in a million years go out for lunch and order Kraft uh, macaroni and cheese. Ever. would never do that. There's so many other good things to eat. I would never eat that. But if I walk in and see leftover four or five hour old Kraft macaroni and cheese so that it's so solid that when you pick it up on a spoon, it all hangs together, you know, like a big wad of macaroni and cheese, right? You know what I'm talking about. The cheese has been sitting around the bottom of the pan. I walk in there and I'll, I'll see it. And when I see it, I'm like, hmm, I can't stop myself from having to see if that tastes just like I think I know it's going to taste. And there is not unthinkable for me to just kill off all that's in there and then my wife will walk in and disbelieve. You ate that macaroni and cheese? And I say, yeah, the dog must have jumped up there or something, you know. It's the lust of the eyes, you know. You didn't realize how bad your car was till you sat in a new one, till you smelled the new one, right? Till you saw what so-and-so's driving. Suddenly, those lusts kick in. And so the world system is based on this, right? Uh, how does a Christian find a mate? A Christian finds a mate by praying and asking God to direct his steps, his or her steps, to go find that person that's right for them, right? How, but that's not how it is in the world, right? Right? You bait the hook, right? You dress a certain way. So everybody knows, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? And that's why, because of the eyes. Because of the eyes. And, and because the lust of the eyes. And that whole idea that, that this drive for covetousness, desiring something, not an impure desire either. It could be a good desire, you know. Uh, why does the grocery store put all that stuff right at the, the level of your children's eyes. Why are the batteries up here, right? And the chiclets down here, right? Why is the gum down here 
and all the electronic stuff is up here because they're, it's their last, you're leaving the store. This is the last chance for them to squeeze one more dollar out of you. So what do they do? What do they rely upon? They rely upon your eyes falling upon something. Oh, I, do, I need batteries. And then you grab the batteries. You didn't go there knowing that you needed batteries, but when you saw the batteries, you thought, I don't, I, maybe I don't even know if I need them, but I'm just going to buy them anyway. It's just like I said, I had, why? Because that's the way the world system works. That's the way the world around us is working. And so when we look at this, we recognize that God is warning us not to love the world and the system of the world that relies upon covetousness. I, you know, there's a store I like to go to. It's a it's like a farmer's store. It's called Rural King. Anybody been to a Rural King? Just a couple. Uh, Rural King, they make popcorn in there, just like in the old days in the store. And when you walk in, you smell popcorn. And there's something about me and popcorn that can just coexist for hours together in that store. I could just, I don't even have to eat it. I just have to smell it. And it makes me, makes me think this is a, a whole, you see, this, the world is always hooking you into something. Everything in the world is trying to sell you something, hook you into that. Lust of the eyes, the pride of life, this false facade that we put on. And, and so we, we put that on, this independent streak that runs within us that tells us that we don't have to submit to the commands of the Lord. We don't have to think in his priorities. We don't, we don't have to live underneath the help of the Lord. But we, we just have this, this pride of life that says, I'll do it myself. I'll do it on my own. I'll do it. So all that stuff is... is, is, is confronts us here. And so the world system is a, it reminds us here that the world system is a limited system. It's a temporal system and there's nothing in that system that's going to last forever. But the one, the one who is the Lord's, the one who obeys the commands of God, that person already has eternity going on. If you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, eternity has already begun for you. You have eternal life that's begun on the inside. You are already beginning to live out your eternal life. This, this discipleship process, this growing process is causing you to grow. So what does all this have to do, to do with this topic of souls aren't sexy? What does it have to do? Well, the reality of it is that God has a call for believers. That there's a passion that Jesus had that we don't have and this call is passionately on the inside. And so Jesus tells us, or the scripture tells us in 1 John, not to love the things of the world. So if we're not supposed to love these things, what are the things we're supposed to love? Would you look with me to Mark or to Matthew chapter 9? And let's just take a we're going to go through this passage of scripture, not detailed, but just to look at these things. And because I believe God really has something powerful empowering truth here that he wants to show us in uh, Matthew chapter 9. The call that comes to every believer is the call for souls. We see, look, look in verse 12, Matthew 9 verse 12. It says, on, on hearing this, that this is a, this is a criticism of Jesus. Somebody had the gall, if you can imagine, to criticize Jesus. Why does your master eat with sinners? You know, uh, if you can imagine that. So somebody is criticizing Jesus, and Jesus says, the reason you don't understand it, it's implied here, 
The reason you don't understand that is you don't understand my purpose in life. You don't understand my heartbeat. You don't understand the thing to which I give my 100% allegiance to. He says in verse 12, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, my passion isn't for the religious gathering of the self-righteous. My passion isn't for those people who offer up continual sacrifices of praise. My passion is for those who don't have the opportunity for that. This is what I'm made of, Jesus says to them. You don't understand why I'm fellowshipping with sinners and, and, and Pharisees, why I'm hanging out with whoremongers and whores. You don't understand why I'm dealing with the, with, with the refuse of society. You don't understand why I'm touching the lepers. You don't understand why I'm doing the things I'm doing. You don't understand them because you don't understand the value of a soul. And you see, the, the problem with the church is souls aren't sexy. Because the church is still locked into the system of the world. And because we're so locked into the system of the world, there's not a lot of attraction to us when we talk about lost souls, the brokenness of humanity. There's not a lot of attraction there. There's nothing that compels us to go there. I mean, it's, it's crazy, but it, it, it's, that's just the way. Jesus, I have come for sinners. I came specifically for sinners. Look down in verse 36, same chapter. Down in verse 36. It says that Jesus went through, throughout all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. In verse 36, he tells us that the, he looks at the, the crowds, he looks at the people of humanity, he looks at humanity, he looks at human beings, and he says, this is the problem. I'm filled with compassion for them because they are a hot mess. They are harassed and helpless. They are vulnerable to wolves. They are empty in their souls. It's a strange lie that the devil sells us to tell us that we are freaks to make you feel as if you're some kind of a weirdo because you responded to Jesus. You responded to the call of the kingdom and to the move of the Holy Spirit in your life, and then the enemy comes in and says, you're weird, other people aren't like you. And that's simply not at all the truth. Everyone you know the most impossible people you could ever imagine. The people who you think there's no way God could ever save them. They have a hunger in their soul as well. The lie the enemy says is that you're the weirdo. But that's not really true. 
Every single person, every single human longs for that. They may have a funny way of showing it. They may act out in rebellion. But listen, when you have a heart-to-heart with persons who, who maybe, they, maybe they're tough-looking, maybe they, they, they could be a, anybody from a biker gang to a murderer in prison. doesn't make any difference. I've, I've talked to murderers. I've talked to bikers. If you have a heart-to-heart talk with them, just talk to them on their level and tell them about the greatness of the love of God. And about how that none of us in this place deserve to even have a hearing with God. But God loved the world enough to send his son so that you could get a do-over. So that you could, you could be forgiven from all the stuff that you've done. And when you talk to people, like you will see tears roll down of the hardened eyes. You will see the, the hardened hearts, the shell of the hardened heart begin to break open, and you'll see that the least likely people to get saved will get saved. Why? Because we're all the same on the inside. We're all the same on the inside. One of the reasons why we don't share our faith with people is because we think we're weird. We're we're unique. We're unique because we are beggars who know where the bread is. We're all beggars, but we are the beggars who know where the bread is, the bread of life. We know where he is. But the enemy has us convinced that the fact that we know where the bread is is something that we should keep to ourselves. But Jesus says about the people that he sees here, and he's filled with compassion, probably because the truth is so locked down in religion, probably because it's so inaccessible to the people, probably because they can't get there even though they're this close to the Pharisee. They still can't get to the God that the Pharisee once knew and loved vibrantly. I, I think about this. With the, things that, the things that really move me, I go through, I go just like everyone, I suppose, we go through hot and cold phases in our relationship with the Lord. Can we admit that? You know, like sometimes we're really like, I'm, I'm on fire, and then sometimes I'm like, Cold as ice, right? All right? We all go through that. I mean, there was a time, I remember years ago, there was a time when I just was dried up. I was beat up. I was fried. I was, you know, I was a crispy critter. I didn't have any, any new thoughts. I didn't, like, I would read stuff. Everything was flat. I, didn't, I wasn't getting revelation from God. And I began to seek the Lord and say, Lord, what, you know, where do I go from here? I've been in the ministry now for a while. Have I experienced all there is to experience? I don't believe that. I still have a list of miracles I need to see answered, all these things. And, and, and the Lord said, go back to the beginning. I hate that when God tells you to do something like that, and then you have to go back and try to remember what was the beginning. What was the beginning? Well, for me, the beginning was coming to the realization that I had to love God. And it was in the reading of the Gospel of Matthew, actually, that as I began to read, I suddenly came across this revelatory verse that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That it wasn't about putting together services, and it wasn't about having the right prayers to pray, and it wasn't about knowing Bible knowledge, and it wasn't about uh, being available to people, and it wasn't about trying to be the shell answer man for the church. It wasn't about that. It was, what it was about was... Loving God with everything within you. 
If you get to a place where you're dried up, then you need to go back to loving God. Because something along the way stole your love for God. I will tell you with a fact, ministry will do that to you. Trying times will do that to you. They will steal your love for God. And so you have to go back to that place and say, Lord, do I love you? And you have to be honest with yourself because it's only you and him that are there. And he's always honest and you're, well, we know how you are. And so you have to ask yourself, do I really love God? Do I, re- do I really love you with all my strength, with all my heart, with all my mind? Am I really loving you? And you, and you go back to that and you see that, that emptiness and that restoration, what happens is then you fall back in love. It's, it's the same thing that, I always say this, but it's the same thing that a couple does. A couple, you know, a couple, married couple, they got three kids. Oldest one is 12. The youngest one is whatever, five. And, uh, and re- the reality of it is they are not the same people that fell in love. That's the reality of it. I mean, I don't want to shock anybody here, but... They aren't the same people. They fell in love, and then they started having babies. And when they started having babies, then they were up all night. And when they were up all night, then they were tired and crabby in the morning. They began to bark at each other. And then uh, he, never, he wasn't there enough to do the, 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 he didn't help out with the laundry and, and, or, or, or help her at all with the kids and didn't understand, was short with her because he'd lost some sleep the night before. And they began to bicker and complain to each other. And, uh, and then this goes on, and then guess what? Somehow, love produces another child. And then another one. And at this point, you know, we talk about in a marriage the seven-year itch. It's seven years of being different people than the two people who fell in love. That's really the truth. The two people who fell in love, they were young and carefree. They had nothing to tie them down, right? It was just you and me, babe, right? And then suddenly, responsibility. And what happens? And pastor, they come into my office. What, what are we going to do? I don't think I love him anymore. Well, you probably don't. He's unlovely. So what should we do? Well, I'll tell you what. The two of you, get a babysitter. Call grandma in for the weekend. Have her babysit the kids. And you go away. And you go back. And you find those two people, again, who loved each other with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, who said, we'll live together, we'll do this great, we'll, we'll make it, we'll be a great, God-ordained team, and you come back with that new enthusiasm. Don't worry, life is plenty of life left to suck the joy out of you again. And what, well, what is that? That's just revival. It's just the revival of your spirit. And so, so Jesus says, I see these harassed and helpless people, these emptied people, these vulnerable people. I see these people who, who are, are um, harried, harassed. They're always in a hurry. They're always busy. I see these people, and, and, I, and I, he says, in, like he was a part of the A-team, I pity the fools. I pity them. Look how they're living their life. That's not how God meant for them to live their life. And so then he says to his disciples in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, 
but the workers are few. This is the diagnosis. The diagnosis of the world is it's a jacked up world. People are a mess, but they're ripe. They're ripe. The harvest is white. We're, we're so separated from that, we don't even understand what that means. We live so far from a farming community, we don't even understand what that means. Down at, in, at the farm, I know there's guy, there, there are guys who are like runners in the starting block. Because when the corn is ready, it's got to be brought in. Because when the beans are ready, they have to be brought in. Not whenever you get around to it. These guys work other jobs. They come home when it's time for the harvest, and they get up after a full day's work, working in some box factory someplace, and they climb up into a $140,000 reaper, and they fire that diesel motor up, and they begin to drive, and they will go all night long harvesting. Why? Because harvest is this moment. It's not in the future. It's not in the past. When the harvest is ready, the harvest is ready. Jesus says, I see these guys, they're all a hot mess, and I recognize it's harvest time. Pray for laborers. That's what he tells his disciples, because it's now harvest time. He's not saying pray in advance that someday when the harvest comes, there'll be enough laborers. That's not at all what he's saying. Anybody who tells you that that's what it's saying doesn't understand the intention of the verse. Jesus is saying, now is the moment of harvest. I need workers in the vineyard. I need people out there to do the work of God. I need them right now. And he tells that to his disciples. It says Jesus says that to his disciples. He says, listen, I need you guys to pray. Now, I can't imagine if you're just hanging out with Jesus, and all of a sudden he turns to you and he says, listen, I need you to pray. Well, you're the son of God. Can't you just pray? And then we'll just say amen at the end of your glorious prayer. I need you to pray. We'll see why he does that in a minute. I need you to pray. See, there's a sense of urgency when the harvest is ready. But the church doesn't live with that sense of urgency. The church lives as though there's a harvest coming someday. And boy, I hope we have workers when that happens. But that's not at all the intention of the church. Look at Jesus' life. He lived in the constant, ongoing urgency. Jesus prayed all night. He's Jesus. Couldn't he just postpone one more year? Couldn't he just say, you know, instead of three years of ministry, Father, give me four years of ministry and some sleep. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus was up praying all night to get spiritual energy so he can continue to do ministry nonstop because he lived with a sense of urgency but that's not how the church lives. The church doesn't live like that. We can live next to somebody for 10 years and never tell them about Jesus. Maybe never even say hi to them. We don't live with any sense of urgency. I read a, I read a Facebook post today by a friend of mine who used to pastor in Chicago, and now he's become a big shot in the Assemblies of God. He's the president of the uh, Assembly of God Theological Seminary. And he said he was in... A, a different town, he was, I think it was in Colorado someplace, and wandering around, his wife had an appointment to get her hair done. And so he, he said, well, you know, there's a coffee shop right over there, and I'll go over there in this coffee shop, and I'll sit down and, and wait for you to get your hair done. So 
he went over there. You know, it's kind of, it took a while for her. It's a strange hair, hairdresser, so she didn't know. There's a lot of explaining, I guess, that needed to be done. It took a, an hour and a half or so. And so while he was in the coffee house, he suddenly realized after he'd been in there about 10, 15 minutes using their wireless and, and drinking a cup of coffee that he was the only guy in the store. And the more he, he, more he noticed that, the more he realized that the people in the, in the coffee house didn't look like they were from the same evangelical culture that he came out of. And so, rather than leave, he decided to get up and he went over to them, these three gals that were in the corner, and he said to the manager, hi, my name's Mark, and began to talk to her, and he said, you know, feel kind of strange. I'm the only guy in here. And she said, well, you know, everyone's welcome, but we mostly cater to lesbians. Here he is, the president of an evangelical seminary in the lesbian coffee house. He said, well, what are you guys doing? Well, we're, we're pasting the names of these 49 people who were killed down in Florida. Orlando. So he opened up a discussion, extended discussion with them about this. He said they talked for an hour. And he explained to them, you know, I totally disagree with you, your view of human sexuality, but I love you just the same because we're all flawed. Every one of us have a flaw. You know, you can see blind spots in me that I can't see. Anyway, he had this long conversation and they said, it's a miracle that you came in here today. That's what they said to him. Isn't that amazing? And you would think, well, here they are, you know, they would, they would marshal up against him, especially while they're grieving from the wounds of this thing at the, at the Orlando Dance Club. But that's not what at all what happened. Why? Because people are the same everywhere. No matter how they practice their life, they are the same everywhere. They have a, a hunger in the inside for health and wholeness and righteousness. There's something on the inside there that's, that's difficult for us to grasp. And the more we, more we cloister ourselves off. You know, when you take a group of people and you put them into a place and they all think the same in that place, you know what you call that place? Ghetto. That's what a ghetto is. And, you know, for a long, Berwyn was, when I, before I came to, Ber, to Cicero, Berwyn was written up in Time magazine as one of America's most desirable ghettos. Because the people were very similar. Now, they changed immediately when I moved here. I don't know what happened. But it's interesting to me that we've made that term to be something other than what it is. Anyway, long story short, he had this effective ministry there. And Jesus says to these disciples of his, listen, this place is a hot mess. We, I'm, I have compassion on these people. I need you to pray. Pray that there'll be laborers in the harvest field. We're good Christians. We pray over our meals. We pray about our jobs. We pray over our kids when they go to sleep at night. We pray for a raise. We pray for our church. We pray for our pastors. We pray. We pray and we pray and we pray. But do we pray for the world around us?
Is there any part of us that prays for the world around us? Jesus commands his disciples here, I want you to begin to pray for the world because the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Have you ever sat on the bench at the mall? I hate shopping, so my wife drags me to the mall on the rare occasion that she can actually drag me out of the house to the mall. I usually plant myself on a bench someplace in the mall and I just look at people. I look at their shoes. You can tell a lot about somebody by their shoes. Next time you're in the mall, look at people's shoes. You can tell people who have money by their shoes. You can tell people who are, work, who are hard workers by their shoes. You can tell people's priorities by their shoes. Anyway, I look at people and I watch them and I see them. I watch the people. Do you ever watch people? Watch them while they're on their way to hell. Just watch them. They have no idea how lost they are. They're just struggling to make it through. From a paycheck to another paycheck, they're just struggling to make it through. To watch people, it's so unkind to not say anything. And then I think about all the revivals. I know this seems like I'm flying all over the place, but it all come together at some point. I think about all the revivals that I've read about in history. There is not a single revival in the history that I, in history that I know of, in the history of America for sure, but even in the outpouring in Wales and all these, in Australia and all these different places, all those revival history, there was always prayer for the lost that preceded that revival. Always prayer for the lost. Praying for the world and for laborers is a sign of revival in the church. So it should be, it should be in, indicative of the spiritual life, the spiritual condition of Christian Life Center, how many times we pray for the lost. You know, it really bothers me that we will pray about your hangnail and about your heart condition, and about your Uncle Betty's cancer, and all these other things. But we never pray for the lost. You say, well, how would we do that? Well, I don't know, on Teacher Appreciation Day, why don't we pray for all the lost teachers? On, on, uh, on the days when we, we appreciate firemen and policemen, why don't we pray over our first responders? Why don't we pray for the salvation to come in? Do you know the conditions of the police department and the fire department, the sheriff's department? Do you know the, the marriage, the marriages break up at an alarming rate amongst those people who see the kind of garbage that they see every day? There's, there's a lot to be compassionate about there. So all this, and then look down to the next chapter, Matthew chapter 10. Well, the verse right before, he says, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out laborers into his harvest field. He closes chapter 9 with this 
this verb. You know, just ask. And then look at the next verse. Chapter 10, verse 1. He called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. What happened there? Before they could do it, they had to pray about it. They had to see the need. They had to understand the need. They had to get this into their... They had to begin to weep over the lostness of humanity. They had to begin to, to see that there was a need. And they had to pray, Oh God, send somebody. And then Jesus called them in and said, Hey, I heard your prayer. You prayed to God that God would send somebody. I'm sending you. I'm sending you. What happened there? Jesus outsmarted them. He said, I want you to see it. I want you to smell it. I want you to pray about it. I want you to see the need. I want you to pray about the answer to that need. I want you to think about the answer to that need. Now come here. Let me give you all the equipment that you need. I'm going to give you the full authority of the gospel to heal the sick and to cast out the demons so that you can preach in those places. I'm going to give that to you because you prayed. Because you prayed. I'm going to give you that. I don't know. If the church never prays about it, if the church never comes to that, never begins to see the souls for what they are as the most important thing, what keeps us from seeing souls everywhere we go? Lack of urgency maybe in our spirit? The soul is invisible and the flesh is very pronounced. You know, you don't dress your soul up and you get up in the morning. You put your makeup on, you put your clothes on, you, get, you, you dress yourself up to accent whatever you got, and then you head out. To the, 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 but that's all on the outside. You don't really do that for the inside. And quite frankly, you can walk into church on a Wednesday night and pretty well feel that no one in here can see your soul. And you could have been having demonic thoughts all day long. And not a soul in here is the wiser. I was telling somebody the story about a friend who knew that he was in sin and a prophet was coming in. So what's the first thing he did? He's dressed up on the outside. Dressed all up on the outside so he wouldn't look as unrighteous as he really was. The irony is that that's, he's the first person the prophet called out. You, sir. See, God sees through all that stuff. God sees the soul is invisible, and so it can get lost in the shuffle, and sometimes we don't pay attention to that. The pursuit of pleasure and comfort and entertainment and all that self stuff, that stuff can eclipse the souls around us. I'm not saying you shouldn't watch TV, you can't go to the movies. I'm not saying that stuff. I'm just saying that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's what he came for, to seek and save the lost. That's what it says in Luke 19. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That was his one deal. That's the thing he came for. And we can get distracted from pursuit of the lost souls. We can even work alongside them for years and never recognize that we should say something. 
Have you ever had somebody give you the greatest insult to every Christian? The greatest insult. After you've worked with somebody for a while, finally maybe you open your mouth and you say, yeah, I was, you know, at the church potluck yesterday. Oh, you go to church? Well, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I had no idea that you were a Christian. If someone says that to you, you need to go look at yourself in the mirror and say, why in the name of Jesus Christ did they not know that I'm a Christian? There should have been some tell, some, some little, little sneaky sign, you know. I'm sorry this, if this is making you uncomfortable, but it makes me feel good to get it off my chest because I've been thinking about it for a long time. The world around us has all been redefined. The movies tell us that the whole purpose of life is to find the one magical person who when you kiss them, then sparks and butterflies shoot all through your system and they make everything right and your soul is completely satisfied with that one person. I think that's about as real as Cinderella having a pumpkin turned into a carriage, to be quite honest with you. I don't go for that kind of love. But that's what the movies tell us life is about, falling in love. We've got Christians who are desperately jumping from church to church so that they can find someone with whom to fall in love, looking for the right person. What would happen if we just looked at ourselves in the mirror and said, okay, you become the right person? Maybe the, right, the other right person would come match up with us. The atheists tell us that life has no meaning. So just do whatever. Please yourself. Do whatever you want. Life has no meaning. It's completely useless. The humanist socialists tell us that it's all about the collective. It's not really about you, but it's about us. It's not really about you and your rights. and your. It's about everything. We all need to be thinking about ourselves, all of ourselves together. And there's some truths in these things. But Jesus taught that the purpose of life is to please him who created you. Did you catch it when we sang it? We sang it tonight. That you formed all things. And that we should please the one who created everything that is around us. Yep, no, sometimes we make provision for the flesh. We say, oh, I'm, I'm shy. Or I'm a, I'm a little ashamed. Or I'm afraid that they're going to shock me with some question that they have that I won't have the answer for. But a simple glance at the Savior's life and at his word tells us that his priority was the souls of those who were around him. It wasn't about him. And for his disciples, he told them, don't make it about you. Make it about all those around us. When he was a little boy, they found him, and he said, don't you know I must be about my father's business? He warned his disciples, you must work, John 9, because the night is coming when no man can work. It could be that the day that you're waiting for to finally turn on your glorious witness for Jesus Christ will be absolutely the moment when it can't happen anymore. Paul told us that we should... Redeem the time because the days are evil. 
2 Timothy chapter 4 said we must be in, instant, in season and out of season. John chapter 4 says, lift up your eyes and look to the fields for they are white with harvest. Colossians chapter 4 says that our everyday speech should be seasoned with salt so that people will immediately know the saltiness of our gospel witness. The fact is the people who work with us, the men and women who rub shoulders with us every day, they do have a seeking nature. They do wonder if perhaps this Jesus thing is for real. Sometimes the Spirit of God moves in the hearts of people as you're just talking to them. I see them in the middle of the service. Sometimes as the Holy Spirit begins to move on a Sunday service, I see chests begin to heave and tears begin to fall. I see relief come over the countenance of the person who came in burdened. But then suddenly they hear the good news that there's a God who loves them. They find out that they can be forgiven and they can be loved and they can start over and they don't have to be bound to the lifestyle that brought them in there. That they can be a spiritual person. That they can be powerfully spiritual as a person. Souls aren't sexy. But they are the thing that Jesus came for. And if at any moment the church becomes about anything but that, we are lost. We're lost in our witness. We're lost in our way in the world. Will you pray with me for a Christian Life Center? Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope you were blessed by it. If there's anything that we can do to help you further your relationship with God, we would love to be a part of it. You can contact us through our website, www.boroughandag.org. Thank you, and God bless.